This podcast is sponsored by I2C, providing innovative banking and payments, quickly get to market and optimize profitability with I2C's best in class credit, debit, prepaid and core banking solutions. Go to www.i2cinc.com. That's www.i2cinc.com to learn more. Today on the Tearsheet Podcast. So what we were able to do with AI is look at and make predictions based on all the history we see in the network of what is most likely to happen next. And AI is just a big prediction engine. So we built this absolute engineering marvel. It's got uh, about 2 billion card profiles, a couple of hundred analytical vectors on it, and we score every transaction in real time as it runs through the system. So we talk about scale and what we do with that. And two of the big benefits is not only are we stopping three times more fraud than we ever could before, I think it was over $10 billion in the first half of this year, but we have 6x improvement in false positive detection, letting good things go through. So that's been a tremendous boon to our business. So I think that's an example where you say we have a really well-defined use case. We have very structured information because it's transaction data through. We have a very clear, clear signal because we find out what's fraud and what isn't, and we could then apply you know, backpropagation, machine learning techniques to have a revolutionary, a state change in how well we could do that. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast, where we explore the future of financial services with an eye on technology, innovation, new models, and changing consumer expectations. I'm Tearsheet's Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. One of the tenets we founded this podcast and everything we do at Tearsheet on, from our reporting, conferences, awards programs, even our new working groups, is honesty. Honesty in what's really important and impactful to you, our listeners and readers. It's why we don't use language like revolutionary or seamless. This stuff isn't easy to get right, and I've been in the game long enough to see fads come and go without a lasting impact. We actually see it as one of our jobs, being able to distinguish wheat from chaff, the sizzle from the steak, to help you focus on what's really important and to tune out the rest. Remember the hype around chatbots a few years ago, or crypto? Certainly, we weren't there before, but are we there now? How do we even think about quantum computing? I'm joined by MasterCard's president and CTO, Ed McLaughlin, today. I wanted to ask him what he thinks about three particular trends and sets of technology. Specifically, how do we size up the impact on payments of AI, quantum computing, and crypto? You'll hear Ed's deep experience in product and tech, and how one of the senior most professionals of financial services can cut through the hype to find opportunity in cutting edge technology, focusing his and MasterCard's resources on what will be impactful now and in the future. In the course of our conversation, McLaughlin provides some frameworks about how to approach new technology in an honest way. And I appreciate his honesty around his process and his sharing of his impact assessment on these new technologies. Here's my discussion with MasterCard's Ed McLaughlin. Great, so who are you and what do you do? Hi. I'm uh, Ed McLaughlin, and I'm the Chief Technology Officer here at MasterCard. And it's nice to have a title that's pretty much what I do. I look after all of the technology, the network, our engineering for, for MasterCard. Very straightforward. Welcome to the show, Ed. Very glad to be. Um, so we're here to talk about AI, quantum, and crypto and their impact on payments Maybe we can start just, uh, even without getting into any of the specific technologies, how, how do you think about, I mean, you've been in the, the rodeo long enough to know, like, you know, <laughs> and to spot trends early, what's real, what's not real. Like, how, do you, how excited or how invested do you get in some of these, these new technologies? 
Well, I always get extremely excited about any new technology, but I'll call it a measured, perhaps even a jaded enthusiasm, because you're right. Uh, Over the years, there's been so many technologies that are out there. I remember uh, it's probably a dozen years ago, people had to end every sentence with, and on the blockchain. Yes. And and you'd have to ask, and why? You know, is it better than what you have? So I think two things come come to the fore. One is a, a really deep understanding of what the problem space is that you're looking to solve. So when you talk about globally scaled payments, there's a lot of unique issues there. When you talk about fighting fraud, uh, if you talk about large scale information systems, so you have to be very deeply versed in the topic or subject matter you're, you're solving for, and then really engage in all new technologies to say, does this give me an opportunity to do the things I do today better than what I could do before? Or my favorite is, would this enable us to do something we could never do before because it's Mm. now possible? And in terms of building your team and your processes at MasterCard, like, is there somewhat of a graduation process through this where, where I guess you test out something new and then once you've identified it as being, ah, this is something we should invest more heavily in, does it, does it move somewhere else in the organization? Does it get more resources? Maybe you can take us through how, how you envision that. Yeah, it's an, I would say it's an evaluation, investigation and evaluation process. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I would caution against, and we still have a little bit of this, where a new technology comes out and people are like, what can I use this for? Rather than what are the problems we need to solve? Right, a solution looking for a problem. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you you always have to, we all do it, but you always have to be really, really careful about that. So we try to start with, you know, what are things that if we could do it better or differently would just be awesome? What are things that might be kind of suboptimal today, a lot of toil or a heavy process that, that this might help with? And that's the lens we use for evaluation. Um, So for example, well over a decade ago, the ability to move from relatively fixed rules-based systems to using artificial intelligence to do things like pick up fraud patterns in the network, it was incredibly clear that there was potential value there. And then given that, you then just get really good at bringing the technologies in, testing them out, running them in parallel with what you have today, and you see that value, and that determines how much you scale it or what you move over to or, or not. That makes a lot of sense. And I'd have to assume that fraud um, and, and the importance of rooting it out is, is at the heart of a lot of testing of new technologies, evaluating new technologies, as you put it. Yeah, just a particular thing for MasterCard. Um, you know, we think about two things. We run a payment system. So there's fraud being perpetrated through the system. And then we also have to worry about cybersecurity attacks on the system itself. Two very mm. different categories, actually, when you think about it. And yeah, so for fraud through the system, um, maybe I'll give you one one great example. As I said, it used to be a pretty fixed rules-based system. And, and I think you probably years ago would get declined and it was sort of inexplicable to you. You know, why I'm me, I'm here doing this. Or maybe get your card replaced because credentials have been stolen somewhere and, and, and we had to do that. So what we were able to do with AI is look at and make predictions based on all the history we see in the network of what is most likely to happen next. And AI is just a big prediction engine. So we built this absolute engineering marvel. It's got uh, about 2 billion card profiles, a couple of hundred analytical vectors on it, and we score every transaction in real time as it runs through the system. So we talk about scale and what we do with that. And two of the big benefits is not only are we stopping three times more fraud than we ever could before, I think it was over $10 billion in the first half of this year, 
but we have 6x improvement in false positive detection, letting good things go through. So that's been a tremendous boon to our business. So I think that's an example where you say we have a really well-defined use case. We have very structured information because it's transaction data through. We have a very clear, clear signal because we find out what's fraud and what isn't. And we could then apply you know, backpropagation machine learning techniques to have a revolutionary a state change in how well we could do that. And what was it about AI that, that I guess, changed the ability? What, what advances in AI and the technology itself enable you to do that? So, and, and we always have to be careful. I want to get to um, Gen AI in a second, right? When you, when you say AI, there's a huge range of technologies which are evolved there. Um, I think the biggest things for us is moving from a rules-based system where someone would do a lot of analysis of what happened in the past and then try to come up with... A lot of if-then statements. Yeah, Yeah. come up with rules around it to a pure prediction system. And I think the beauty of AI is what used to be really expensive, predicting something becomes really, really cheap. So rather than analysts figuring out what was fraud or not, we could just take the signal of this was fraud, look at all the history and signals for it, and allow the system itself to make a much better determination than we ever could before. can also do it a lot faster. We're looking at every transaction in real time, not applying rules to what was a historical analysis. So I think that's a great example where, you know, you get a state change there. We also and that was have, happening before Gen AI came through. Oh, well before. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I said, we've been doing this for, for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the machine learning backpropagation has been really helpful for us. When I look at Gen AI... Um, you know, I said it when we were together at Money 2020, you know, I, I think one of the greatest things about Gen AI is at least we could talk a lot less about the metaverse because everyone's <laughs> interested in that now. But Gen AI is doing great things with unstructured information. So that would allow us to do things like taking really complex information sets like rules and development things and everything else and help us support our customers better around that. So you, you get a very different set of tools and techniques that you can use to solve new and new problems or new problems in novel ways, which I think is really, really helpful for that. So we've done a lot of structured work. I think the, the promise of Gen AI is the ability to do so much better with the unstructured information that's out there. Before we continue, I wanted to draw your attention to I2C's recent research on how younger consumers make credit decisions. You know, tracking Gen Z and how financial institutions will need to evolve to serve them has been a major theme for us here at Tearsheet over the past year. And this report is important if you're offering, or thinking about offering, any credit products like credit cards or BNPL to younger customers. What was interesting to me in this report is Gen Z's response to incentives, how rewards drive their usage of credit cards and how it's different than generations before them. Also, figuring out how younger customers use revolving credit with a mix of BNPL is essential for serving them in the future, particularly in an environment of tight credit. With I2C's best-in-class credit, debit, prepaid, and core banking solutions, I2C is helping FIs and fintechs effectively serve the needs of younger consumers and not just talk about it. It's an important report. Download the report at tearsheet.co slash I2C. How does MasterCard navigate some of the ethical considerations when thinking about implementing AI in financial systems? That is the most important question, quite frankly, and it all starts with the data. So if you go and you look at MasterCard's site, uh, years ago we published a Consumer Data Bill of Rights, 
which is how we protect your data. We use the data to make the service you have from us better. We'll get permission for any usage of the data outside of that. So we've been very clear from the start of how and where we use consumers' data and the rights you have to that. And that's something which I'd encourage everyone, all organizations, to adapt very, very clear data principles. When you have those data principles, then you say, how are you applying AI against it? Uh, we were a founding member of the Harvard Kennedy School um, uh, Council for Ethical Use of AI. And what I like about going after things like fraud is the only loser is the jackal, is the bad guy trying to rip people right. off. Uh, when we do it for something like affinity or loyalty, you get things which are more rewarding for you. And, uh, you know, we can personalize and tune products a lot better um, to give you a better service by using the data for that. So I think those elements are really clear. We've also done a lot, and again, I encourage everyone to think about this from a public policy standpoint. I'm going to step a little bit away from the technology for a second. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we as a society haven't resolved certain principles. So we look at the technology as what we need to regulate, when really what we have to understand is what our principles are. And privacy is a great example. Um, you know, I think everyone, use, you know, you'd go to the police station and flip through a mug book and they were like, okay, mug shots, usual suspects, and we were kind of comfortable with that. The idea of facial recognition, scanning everyone getting off of a train, well, we're pretty uncomfortable with that. But it's not the fact that facial recognition technology exists. It's what we used to take as privacy was actually more obscurity. And now that the obscurity is gone, we have to, to determine what we think our societal principles are. So we do a lot working with public-private um, institutions to, to try to, to resolve some of those profoundly important questions. And I think it's translated into let's regulate AI rather than saying let's really think about what you know, the guidelines and rules are we want to have as a society. That makes a lot of sense. It's almost like sometimes we rush to, to, to regulate without fully understanding the impact and, and what it is that we're looking to get out of it, as, as you just described. Yeah, which um, can lead to a lot of distortions and unintended consequences, too. Totally. And it has. It feels like with AI, we haven't even begun to have those conversations yet. And then, and Gen AI has sort of taken off, like, yeah. you know, almost need to, like, you know, not rein it in, but, like, have those conversations quickly because it's it's it, it, this is one of the first times I've seen technology advance so rapidly that it's sort of outstripping any any speed that we have in terms of being able to keep up with it. Well, it is interesting if you look back at some of the decisions. I was a, a big proponent of the Electronic Freedom Foundation, the EFF, in first wave mm -hmm. internet. And some of the decisions we made then had profound impacts for how things like social media and other elements developed. Mm -hmm. And I think we are at a point now where we're making those type of decisions, which really will have you know, significant forward-looking consequences. Well, I think what's interesting as well is that the interplay between organizational um, discussion around those issues and, and, and the enterprise as well. Like I, th I think of like some of the decisions Facebook made early on in its privacy policies mm -hmm. had an impact way beyond Facebook. Yeah, and, and one other quick thing for, for folks that are thinking about or looking at Gen AI, it's like even AI itself, it's such a broad topic. And we've really separated into kind of two categories for us for looking at it. One is tools which are enabled with those techniques. And there's amazing things happening out of, you know, Salesforce, out of things we can do, as I said, to take knowledge bases and serve our customers better. Um, code generation tools, as long as you're comfortable with the IP concerns, which we, we've been saying will only use fully sourced 
um, tools mm-hmm. for that, but can can really help people do their jobs better. And that idea of having these co-pilots, to use Microsoft's phrasing, um, we see just huge advantage for taking toil out of the work that people do to free them up to do even more and, and better work. And then there's how you'd use it for the products and services that you have themselves. So that's when, as I said earlier, looking at fraud and other things that we do that are part of our own service. But I think as organizations, we've got to look at both how do we use these you know, tools and capabilities that are based on generative AI, and then how do you use generative AI for the products and services you actually produce yourself? That makes total sense. I want to switch to quantum computing. My my reporter, my reporters make fun of me because I'm so skeptical about quantum because I've been writing about <laughs> its potential for like eight yes. years, you know, and it still feels like we're not close. So, like, what's your impact assessment on on how Mastercard you know sees quantum computing impacting payments? Yeah, and 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 I'd say two elements on that. One goes all the way back to the start of our conversation. It's something you always look at. Is this a new and novel capability that can allow us to be more of who we are, to do what we do better? And so solving multivariant, incredibly complex problems really, really fast is sort of at the heart of the business. Mm-hmm. So we've been working. We did a, some early on work with D-Wave. Uh, we've worked with some of our other partners to uh, really understand the implications of how quantum techniques might be applied to, to the things we do. I'd say it's very early days, but it's really interesting to look at that. Um, the other thing which is really important to us, and you've heard people talk about Q-Day, is so much of our security is based on encryption. And like you, having tracked this for a long, long time, the idea that there's a non-zero chance within a reasonable planning horizon of something really big happening, well, mm-hmm. then you have to react to it. And that's where I'd put quantum right now. So we've done two things. We've um, looked at expanding the range of encryption techniques we're using. Uh, most of it, if you look at like RSA encryption or elliptical curve and other methods that are solving really hard problems, they will be subject to, you know, perhaps using techniques. There's one called Shor's algorithm that's out there that could solve them much more easily. And it would also happen in, you know, perhaps nation state or other factors that you have to be really concerned about, which might bring that horizon forward a little bit more. So what we've done is the NSA has just published a, a new set, and I'd encourage everyone to look at it, of, of quantum resistance or quantum proof, depending on your opinion, algorithms using things like lattice technology um, that we're certainly looking at. But what we really said is, could we replace our current encryption methods with an alternate or a future method if we needed to? And we've designed that into the backbone of our new network. We did some work with great partners like Verizon and um, Cisco and Arista to pilot what's called um, quantum key distribution, where you actually use quantum entanglement itself to securely put a one-time key or a random number out there that really can't be factored because there's no public key aspect to it. There's no problem to be solved. It's a true random random element. Sort of like the one-time code book in your favorite spy novel. The key, <laughs> you know, the challenge is always the distribution of the code book. You can actually use quantum methods to distribute that securely. So what we're doing is looking at one, if and when that type of compute is there, could we use it to solve problems that are hard for us to do today? And then if that becomes available and can be used to um, break encryptions or weaken what we do for encryption, how do we make sure we're deploying systems that are ready to strengthen those encryption techniques when we need to. 
how and how Ed, do you determine or size up partners? Because one of the things as you, as you were describing the collaboration work you've been doing, it's like with a company with the the size and scale of Mastercard, it's you impact actually what technologies and what flavor of those technologies probably make it to market. So how, how do you how do you judge potential partners and and size up that you know those collaborations? So there's a a great line from Bill Joy, who's one of the founders of Sun Microsystems, godfather of Java. I always describe him as sort of Elvis for geeks. Um, but Bill Joy once said, "No matter who you are and what you do, most of the smart people will always work for someone else." So that's why the network is the computer. And I think partnerships are how we solve problems. So we constantly look to work with people who have mutual interests in natural alignment and advancing the state of the art. And we have a lot of both research partnerships we do. We're not pure research in any way, but I'm a huge believer in applied research. Mm -hmm. So again, we see new and novel techniques. We will offer almost a practicum with what we're doing at MasterCard to say, hey, could this apply here and would help us do better? So I think the, 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 the way forward, the absolute way forward is through these partnerships of finding natural alignment with people that can help you solve very hard problems that you have and bringing the problem to them so they can validate the technologies you do. And that's something we do over and over, really a, a, across the spectrum. In the remaining time that we have, I want to get to uh, to crypto and tokenization. Yep. We kind of ragged on blockchain in the beginning, but <laughs> I'm, kind of, I'm kind of curious. Um, how how do you envision blockchain and and its future impact, if any, um, on your business? Yeah, and 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 just to be clear, there was no rag on blockchain. I'm very enthusiastic about the technology. I think one of the challenges though was early on; it was really misapplied in a lot of places. Right. You know, uh, you know, a lot of times they say we could use the blockchain. It's like, well, you could also use a database. You know, which is right. better? Um, and so the idea that you can take an environment where it's really hard to establish trust and run things in an untrusted system is pretty cool technology. Um, now you take on a tremendous amount of overhead to do that. So mm -hmm. one thing we do point to, and you know, by estimates of publicly available information, a MasterCard transaction is about 750,000 times more carbon efficient than a Bitcoin transaction is today. So when you think about that level of efficiency, you're taking on a whole lot of overhead. So where we see blockchain, again, is establishing shared trust environments where it's really hard to do so. Uh, we think with CBDCs, there's some really interesting work where it's just another tokenized way. Uh, we really like tokenized bank deposits. If you ever thought about like a cashier's check or a certified check all the way back in the old days, the ability to have an immutable digital object which represents real money. It could be transferred natively and digitally. There's, there's a lot of interesting work there. So we actually have uh, partnerships, again, that we're working with a lot of firms to say, how can we create a trust and, trusted blockchain type or based environment to allow for hard problems to be solved in new and novel ways? And uh, it's been a great, great partnership for us out there. And I, I know 2023 probably doesn't stand out very much from the couple of years that preceded it, but it was a wild year, I think. <laughs> it um, certainly was. <laughs> yeah, just trying to wrap my arms and mind around it. How, how are you thinking about 2024? Like, what are some of your big goals and priorities moving into the new year? So I think some of the, the big goals that, that a lot of us share for 2024 is, you know, there's a lot of economic uncertainty out there that we want to all make sure that we're navigating cleanly. Uh, I think there's a lot of 
big questions that we'll continue to pursue. We talked about AI. We talked about um, some of the data privacy and other elements that are out there. And I really firmly believe that a lot of great technologies that we've been working with for a long time will really start to scale and flourish. So like the blockchain network works that we've talked about or the ability to have you know globally distributed applications that can operate um, much more efficiently than what we've had in the past. So uh, I think it's going to be a great year once again for technology. Wish you a great one. Ed, thanks for joining us on Tearsheet Podcast today. Hey, thank you. Take care.